So Dr. Smart does not need an introduction for many here, uh, especially the sisters who either have gone through or taught um, or are teaching right now at Aquinas College. Um, but Dr. Smart, he has been a professor at Aquinas College, Nashville, since 1999. And he started out as an associate professor of biology then moved into teaching many of the sciences, including anatomy and physiology and microbiology and many of the sciences. When the college became a four-year college, he was dean of School of Arts and Sciences uh, and guided the process of developing those many four-year programs. And now presently is serving as associate provost of the college. So um, he has, he's married with um, one wife, Tammy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, but I meant to say it was one son. <laughs> no, he is married with Ta uh, Tammy, is his wife, and uh, who could not be here today. But, um, and then one son, Will, who is uh, a, a freshman at, in high school. Uh, and he came down from Dixon, Tennessee today to be with us. So um, he will be married 31 years in June, so congratulations. <laughs> Dr. Smart uh, received a BA in cell biology at UT Knoxville and his PhD at UT Memphis in microbiology and then continued with postdoctoral studies at the University of Georgia uh, in studies of fungal plant pathogens and is very much involved today at the college uh, with institutional research and, um, and with the accreditation of the college. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Bill Smart. Thank you, sister, uh, and, and thank you all for being here, and thank you especially for the warm welcome. I have to put a timer on, or this will go until, oh, we, we got an hour, though, didn't we? It's daylight savings time. Uh, so thank, and I have to stand here. <laughs> uh, so uh, thank you all for uh, having me here. So the uh, St. Albert the Great has been an interest because he is patron saint of scientists. And so that automatically should be a reason that uh, I should be interested in. The more that I study, the more I see, wow, he really was a uh, prolific scientist, well regarded in his day, well liked, sought after too, especially by, uh, by his uh, pupils. Uh, but besides that, the more I read, the more I saw that he did a lot of other things as well. He was a, um, a theologian uh, as much as he was a scientist. He wrote as much or more in the study of theology uh, than he did uh, in science. Uh, he utilized the philosophical writings of uh, Aristotle, and so we would call him a philosopher as well. Uh, he was a uh, consecrated bishop, served as bishop for three years, and uh, the, his, his time as bishop, I think, uh, in addition to the uh, important uh, uh, sacramental aspects of that office, also, I think, helped to understand it. some other interesting traits regarding um, uh, Albert, did, and that's kind of where I want to leave with us uh, today. And on top of that, many of you may know uh, go ahead. 
the, uh, uh, his uh, role as teacher of uh, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas. And to be honest, I, to, for me, that is kind of where I want to spend uh, a little more time. It's, it's just thinking about him as a teacher and why we regard him so highly uh, as a teacher beyond what we think about uh, his most famous pupil. And so go ahead, sister. The, uh, uh, as I was consulting many sources regarding Albert's life, there uh, is wide variety in uh, when he was born. And so I just picked somewhere right in the middle at about the beginning of the 13th century. And so born in about 1200, uh, somewhere in Germany. Also, all of the German towns and cities and provinces are named and renamed, and I decided to uh, stop trying to, chase, to go down those rabbit holes as much as, uh, as, as interesting as they are. Uh, entered the Dominicans in Italy at a uh, relatively young age and uh, almost immediately began teaching. And interestingly, and as I will continue to discuss, almost immediately became uh, famous and sought after uh, as a teacher, beginning his teachings in, um, uh, in theology. Uh, go ahead, sister. He travels uh, from the uh, seat of higher education at the time in Paris to set up um, to set up uh, a university in Cologne. Uh, he takes his most famous pupil with him then, who doesn't hang around for very long before he returns to Paris. Thomas finishes his writings, uh, and, and then Thomas begins uh, teaching in Paris. Um, the, uh, uh, Albert is elected as the um, uh, provincial for uh, the Dominicans in uh, his area in Germany and serves that out. And this, and it, one of the reasons I want to point that out, well, there's, there's two reasons, uh, is the trust that his brothers must have had and the uh, skill uh, that he had uh, in administration regarding uh, his, his duties as provincial, which is noticed uh, by uh, the Pope and uh, I think Pius XI. I might be mistaken about that, but then consecrated as a bishop. And what's interesting about uh, uh, Albert consecrated as bishop is that he, was, he definitely wasn't seeking the office. He didn't really um, uh, want the office. Of course, in obedience, uh, he took it, but the uh, uh, Jordan of Saxony was uh, concerned about the uh, sort of secular trappings of, the, uh, of those offices at the time and how that would potentially conflict with his vow of poverty. And we'll see in just a few minutes uh, that it did not. Um, the, I want to spend a little bit of time a little later thinking about uh, Albert's defense of Thomas's writings. I know that it is uh, somewhat strange for us to think today that Thomas's writings uh, needed defense, but at the time they did, and, uh, and it was uh, Albert, after Thomas had died, uh, Albert outlived Thomas by some time, um, that uh, he, he took on one of his last travels to uh, go to Paris. Uh, in defense of Thomas's writings. Uh, Albert died. He, he lived a long life. He lived about 80 years, uh, but was not canonized until the 20th century and, um, and uh, named a doctor of the church at the time. 
Uh, this, again, this is just my organizing things. First, I had to do a chronology just so that I could get things straight. And then I had to do it spatially just so that I could get some appreciation for the traveling that he did. And this isn't even comprehensive. Uh, and this, again, this is Google Maps in about 2017 where I'm placing pins and some of the locations that I'm asking from the sources, I mean, they're just not there. And so they're not, they're not going to show up on a modern Google Maps. But of course, through Germany, France, Italy, uh, and uh, I think into uh, at least one of the Scandinavian countries as far as Albert went. And we'll see a little bit later, uh, well, I'll mention a little bit later, why I think that those travels uh, are uh, significant. And so uh, I just want to just in brief think about uh, some aspects of Albert's life. The first, uh, as a scientist, this is how you know many of us came to know and appreciate uh, Albert because he was a scientist, he did a lot of science, and as a scientist, maybe I should like him and look more into him. The more that you look, the more that you see what he did. Uh, it was uh, in just about all of the sources Almost every science that you could uh, that you could imagine, and especially at the time, the the biographers literally like A to Z from astronomy to zoology, Albert uh, had his hands. Uh, in studying these, and not just with some sort of idle curiosity, you, uh, if you will, but but organized uh, observational science for the purpose of, sort of getting at the causes of things, trying to uh, apply uh, what we would today refer to as a rudimentary scientific method, but it, at least it was a method. And it moved beyond uh, just sort of musings on the way that things ought to work by trying to find causes for how things did work. And that, um, uh, you know, science was, well, flourishing might be too strong a word, but there, there, were, there was scientific activity in the 13th century. Albert, even in the 13th century, was regarded as a very competent scientist and began to compose scientific treatises at the request of his brothers so that they could understand the natural sciences a little better. This is going to be important uh, because as a Dominican, uh, if it's not theology, why bother? And, uh, but this is what his brothers wanted. And it's, it's good. we're going to see those getting to truth as they saw it uh, and as it applied uh, into the natural sciences. Uh, if you are uh, so stimulated by this talk that you want to look further into Albert's life, you're, you're going to come across a couple of things that I would ask you to uh, review with caution. Uh, Albert is sometimes associated, especially by some secular biographers, uh, with magic and uh, with alchemy and with astronomy. And uh, at least with respect to uh, alchemy, I would ask you to think about the fact that alchemy is kind of just old chemistry, that changing lead into gold is this kind of thing we think about as alchemy today, really isn't that far removed from changing glucose into carbon dioxide. I mean, it's, it's trying to consider chemical changes and um, uh, you know, and, and applying the term alchemy, you know, we recoil with that word today, but at the time, I don't think that it would have been terribly controversial. Perhaps the same with regard to astrology. And uh, although I didn't dig deep enough to find out whether or not uh, Albert considered, you know, the position of Venus and 
whether or not I'm going to uh, have a bad day, but, but considering how the heavenly bodies impact the activities on earth isn't really that far removed from thinking about, well, how does the moon impact the tides? You know, how does the angle of the sun impact uh, uh, plants, the way they point? And so when you're, when you're reading things like that, especially if you're just doing a quick overview, overview you might want to take into consideration the, the differences in what we think uh, at the time uh, today compared to, uh, compared to uh, Albert's time. Um, so a, uh, a prolific scientist, well regarded in his time, and, and sought after uh, by uh, his uh, pupils, especially his fellow Dominicans, for his um, uh, uh, scientific knowledge. Uh, as bishop, and this is, this is important at least for a couple of reasons. Um, the, uh, as I mentioned before, his... Um, uh, at, the, at the time, bishops were real princes of the church, and all of the, uh, many times they're appointed, there are secular trappings that come with the opposite, and uh, the Dominican order is a very new order at this time. Uh, taking very seriously their vows, especially vows of poverty. And there was some concern that uh, Albert would uh, sort of lose his way uh, with respect. He, he did, not, did not lose his way at all. He conducted his office with great humility and walked everywhere, uh, as opposed to riding on a horse or riding in a carriage. Uh, he walked all of those places that uh, on that map of Europe, and uh, even at the time of his life was referred to as Boots the Bishop uh, because of his uh, what was considered crude footwear. I, I can't imagine any other type in the 13th century, but, but you know, walking all around, I'm sure he probably went through several uh, pairs of shoes was uh, only uh, uh, activist bishop for three years before he was able to resign and get back to his scientific studies uh, and, and especially his uh, teaching. Go ahead. Uh, as theologian, we, we, uh, un unless you start going a little bit deeper into Albert's life, uh, this may be missed. Uh, but Albert wrote more on theology than he did in science. Uh, and his most famous pupil, Thomas Aquinas, wasn't there to learn science. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was there to learn theology, and that's what he taught him. Uh, although, uh, as Albert was composing his own summa, he put it down after he saw Thomas's. Uh, as he said, I just can't do better than this. So that, you know, an act of intellectual humility that uh, is, you know, you don't always see. Okay. The, uh, one of the things, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in a few minutes thinking about the philosophical application, not just to theology, but in science as well, and how that, how we, I would like to think about that with respect to uh, Albert as a, uh, as a teacher. Um, many of you might be familiar with the fact that the uh, writings of uh, Aristotle and other pagan philosophers uh, was not widely available, especially until we get into the uh, very early Middle Ages, had been used by other, um, by other scholars, other non-Christian scholars, and the use of the um, uh, pagan philosophy by Christian scholars was taken with some skepticism and a little bit of fear. 
and the, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, Albert did it and Thomas did it and how they uh, used the uh, sort of philosophical approach to thinking about matters of theology, and I will say in Albert's case, matters of science is, a, uh, is I, you know, I think a lot of fun for us to uh, contemplate. Uh, but the, the, one of the other things too, and Thomas was this way as well, but uh, we don't, they're, they're not so enamored by the pagan philosopher that everything that Aristotle did was great. That there were plenty of times where Albert would uh, see uh, errors in Aristotelian approach and did not hesitate to correct those uh, where he saw them. Um, so, and Albert is teacher, so the, uh, especially famous for teaching St. Thomas Aquinas, though he had had some experience as a teacher uh, prior to that, um, the, uh, um, was uh, active as a bishop for a short time only because he wanted to uh, get back to teaching. The uh, Albert, and it seems Albert's approach to uh, teaching was an effort to integrate many different approaches and forms of knowledge into a more cohesive whole. And that, I think, is a challenging task for anyone, anyone today, and would have been back then. But also, uh, I'm going to suggest that it is an extremely rewarding task. And it is also rewarding, especially for your students that when your students see that that professor works hard to integrate disparate forms of knowledge into a more cohesive whole, uh, frankly, I think it makes each of, the, each of the disciplines more interesting. It also makes them easier to remember and apply. And uh, Albert would have been a master at that because he had that breadth, that ability to do that. A couple of other things with regard to uh, Albert that I did not uh, fail to mention a couple of slides ago regarding his role as bishop. Um, he's only bishop for three years, and uh, one of his uh, tasks was to, uh, there was a, a lot of unease uh, in the German diocese. And uh, one of his tasks was to address those and address several of the problems that was occurring in the middle 13th century in German diocese. That, that was his job. He traveled all over Germany in order to help to settle those and was seen as a uh, master negotiator, that he was very good, that he has this um, this trait of humility and at the same time uh, pretty strong administrative skills and administrative skills especially with regard to negotiation and you know like if you're keeping a list of all of these things he's good at it's kind of got a long list and it's an impressive list and uh, you know in addition to walking all over Europe and, and it's, it's at some point I want to a better picture of this man besides, you know, having individual slides of all of these things that he does is a more cohesive whole of the man. And so uh, I hope at the end that there is something that looks like that. Um, so with regard to uh, Albert's, um, Albert's uh, use of, of philosophy in an, you know, in an attempt to um, bring a, a, a fuller picture uh, to science, 
uh, one of the things that I like to do uh, is just think about creation and, uh, you know, bigger pictures, especially with respect to evolution and that sort of thing. And there are applications uh, in thinking about Albert when it comes to that. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes to use this as an example for uh, how Albert would have seen these issues and approached them uh, with, uh, um, uh, with that integrated approach. And so if you think about the created uh, universe, think about what, what are God's actions in, uh, the, how do we think about God's actions in the created universe? Uh, so I think that, first of all, I'll quickly consider sort of two insufficient approaches, approaches I would think that are, are, are not, you know, uh, the way to do it and, and, and why. And then we'll move to, um, uh, to what Albert would have done. The first is creationism, and the second are, are two separate camps of naturalism. So creationism, very quickly, uh, considers God pretty much as a, a master biochemist, uh, go ahead, a master biochemist, a, um, a uh, uh, sort of, this is referred to sometimes as the God of the gaps, you know, any of those times that God makes a mistake in creation, he comes down and fixes it, and then creation rolls along. And uh, it really just looks at creation more mechanistically and uh, uh, not as a whole. And, and uh, taken to an extreme, it, it takes the Holy Bible and, and begins to treat the Holy Bible simply as a history book. And, um, and, 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 and unfortunately, when the uh, Holy Word is treated in that way, we, we come up with uh, uh, sort of clashes with what we know uh, through methods of natural science. Okay. Naturalism. So uh, there's two there's two types of this: uh, philosophical and methodological. I'll go ahead and say that philosophical naturalism is just sort of not where we want to be. Philosophical naturalism is that sort of school of thought that everything can be explained using only reason without having any need for any supernatural in interventions. And everything is should be yep in all caps because that means everything. Uh, that's uh, natural, supernatural, everything. And so philosophical naturalism, this school of thought, is uh, atheistic or agnostic as best and treats God as irrelevant uh, if God indeed does exist. Uh, methodological naturalism uh, is kind of more the way that science works on a working day uh, in science. And this just uh, sort of removes the supernatural from uh, scientific uh, explanation. Uh, methodological naturalism by itself is not, like we don't have a problem with that unless we say that we can use methodological naturalism as an answer to everything. And when you do that, you slip back into philosophical naturalism and then we have issues. So this doesn't explain everything. This is methodological naturalism would do something like this. <laughs> Go ahead, sister. Um, let's see. Uh, sister, let's skip these. Thank you. Let's skip that one. Uh, with regard to when we say everything, what are the things that science cannot, uh, the methods of natural science cannot uh, help us with? It's a long list, actually. Uh, this is a shorter version of that list. Uh, the methods of natural science cannot uh, answer ethics questions. Uh, they can't begin to explain the origin or purpose of love or justice. Uh, they can't... Um, 
uh, can't tell me why I'm here if, if I'm significant. And so, again, this, this is where philosophical naturalism really runs into a wall when it says everything kind of in all caps. Because these, these are legitimate questions, and uh, philosophical naturalism can't, can't touch questions like this. Go ahead, sister. I can't describe all of reality, the mind, the good. Uh, we assume that there is an objective truth and that there are objective answers uh, that, uh, that are important for these. And um, uh, we, we're, we're going to have a big problem when it comes to that, especially with regard to considerations of the human person. Go ahead. You can try to answer these questions using methodological, uh, philosophical naturalism, but if you do, I refer to that as kind of like doing brain surgery with a hammer. You can, but, and you might learn something, but you're not going to learn that much. You might learn there is a brain. And so then what, what do you do? What do you do? So let's reconsider uh, uh, creation again. So for this lecture, if we're going to consider God's action in the world, then we must also take into account, we have to admit, go ahead, sister. So let's start there. And he probably has something to do with creation. If that's the case, then what is it? Go ahead, sister. That uh, it is good, and that's a whole other lecture. Like why creation is good in the first place uh, is best undertaken by somebody who knows better. Um, that it has a purpose, that it was in the mind of the creator when it was created. And so now we are giving the creator is, is more, uh, it, well, it's more awe-inspiring, if you will, to think about what that creator was thinking when uh, he came up with creation. And it did not have to be. So creation did not have to happen. Uh, so then we have, we're faced with the question, well, then why is it? Uh, and we're assuming that that is a fair question to ask. Uh, so we can just say things like, well, let's just let God be God, and uh, he's over here somewhere, and we're over here, and we're, 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 not, we're not ever going to cross paths. We recognize that there is a God, he's probably good, and, uh, and I will take care of that on Sunday, but on Monday through Saturday, I'm going to be in the lab, and I'm just going to do this stuff, and, and I'll be you know, a good theologian on Sunday and a good scientist on Monday through Saturday, and never let them cross paths. And um, that's not the view of the Catholic Church. It never has been. It would not have been the view of Albert either. That Albert would never have seen a conflict, and he would have seen that there uh, is plenty that theology can, um, can um, uh, add to our understanding of uh, any uh, aspect of creation that he was willing to study. So when we think about creation then, uh, we're, we're sort of backing up and uh, looking at it again from a Christian perspective. And uh, we think of two types. Uh, the first is, in my mind, at least a little conceptually easier. And this is the uh, ex nihilo. It's conceptually easier, just from nothing, okay? That there was nothing, and then there's something. And that was God that did that. Uh, but thinking of what nothing is, is really hard to do. The what is nothing at all. So what's that big empty space? Well, that space has walls, so that's something. And there's probably air in there, and that's something. So thinking of nothing, and then there's something, and, then, and God did that. First, it's hard to think that way, but it also is a little bit easier than uh, what we'll talk about in just a moment. 
Um, and uh, this also, you know, this ex nihilo and Big Bang and this sort of thing is, is a, uh, our, our, our current conversations in, uh, uh, in astronomy and in um, uh, cosmology uh, science for, you know, what, 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 what did happen uh, uh, at the moment and right after the Big Bang. The next type of creation, continuing creation, is uh, thinking about God's action, keeping his creation in being. And it's important to not limit this to uh, just biological things, okay? To humans or to animals or to plants or to any biological thing, but all of creation, keeping it in being. And, uh, and that God's continual action is required to keep it in being. And so if we think about what is meant by being, now we're starting to tread into metaphysical waters. And it's a deep pool, and I don't swim very well in uh, metaphysical waters. So uh, regarding these, this is a question of, of metaphysics, a question of being, and requires a more thorough consideration of, of any creature or, or I would you know, say any of creation, including rocks. Uh, and the philosophers used the uh, idea of causality as the uh, more thorough way of describing all uh, of the created things. Uh, material, efficient, formal, and final. And material and efficient, as scientists, we're a lot more comfortable with because we're comfortable with things that we can hold, tangible things. And with efficient causes, we're a lot more comfortable with processes and watching how things work. And just speaking for this scientist, uh, formal, formal causes are, are a little bit harder to grasp, and that's, you know, this is what I meditate on, is, you know, how does, how does formal cause work? Uh, Albert and Thomas would have been very comfortable thinking about formal cause as these uh, four causes and this type of causality goes back to Aristotelian times and is utilized in, uh, uh, in especially in Thomas's writings in philosophy and in, um, in uh, theology. With regard to final cause, of course, uh, teleology, those uh, go beyond, uh, especially in biological uh, sciences, go beyond merely that, you know, that structure has this function because, and, and, ex and extend beyond that. That's also consequently doesn't become as simple as assigning functions to particular things. Like the why of that thing, it does this because it moves beyond that. As I said, these meta metaphysical waters get pretty deep for me pretty quick. They, they wouldn't have for Albert and they wouldn't have for Thomas in considerations of the natural sciences at the time. Um, so, uh, but thinking this way, widening the way that we consider creation opens up a lot of possibilities for the natural scientists and begins to account for the sense of awe that we have. And this moves beyond just what scientists do, that the sense of awe depending on what aspect of the created world you are, um, that, that, that you favor, it is almost impossible to say that you, that, every, that everybody has a sense of awe about something. And so I put up there, you know, these are just some, some images that might elicit awe depending on 
what types of things that you study. That one on the left, I'm not really sure what that is. I think those are electrons moving all over the place. But the one on the right is the X-ray diffraction pattern of a DNA molecule. This is how the structure of DNA was elucidated by that there. And seeing that for the first time would have been an immense sense of awe. And seeing it now also kind of does the same thing. But if we go and look at other things, depending on who the uh, 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 who the person is looking at it. We like birds. They're pretty. We like colorful fish. But even those intestinal parasites in the upper right are beautiful in their way. Uh, the, uh, and the, and the, the fungi on the left, that's a, a scanning electron micrograph of bread mold. And it's beautiful. And, and these, are, these are the things that, you know, when you start to look at this and you see, Oh, that's pretty awesome. And so, sister, I've got a couple of other eye candy pictures like that. Most people like this. It is beautiful, but it looks cold. And then, uh, sister, uh, next, now that, there you go. You see, and you see much more than just, you see the colors, you start to think of the atmosphere, and why the atmosphere at that time, with those cloud formations, happened to give those colors is, you know, the very scientific way of thinking about how beautiful that is, but, but that by itself is beautiful. And so that's what uh, Albert would have seen, and that is a sense of awe that he would have had, and that's why his uh, uh, students would have come to him. Go ahead. Um, the, the, uh, then the purpose, I think, sister, we're probably going to have to move past this. Definitely. Um, to consider then Albert's, um, how he would have been viewed as a teacher. Uh, we, we know from lots of writings that Albert was sought after even early, and, and I, I can't verify that he was sought after uh, later. Uh, I, I would probably assume so. But if we have his immense knowledge in the natural sciences alone, in addition to his theological knowledge, his applications of philosophy in the study of science and in theology it are, uh, are enough by themselves. And then combine that with the fact that he was regarded by his peers well enough that said, we want you to lead. That he was said to have had a wry sense of humor and that he was a, a very good administrator. And so he had the qualities of a person you just wanted to hang around, okay? And his students would have seen the same thing, but they would have come to him for more than just wanting to have a beer with him. They, they, they can see the way that he would have tied together these multiple disciplines, especially the natural sciences, for the glory of God. And, and that would have been a fun lecture uh, to sit in, and, and it would have made perfect sense in his classroom, especially because of his skill in utilizing a philosophical approach. And so it's because of the breadth that he had that he would have been able to capture his students' attention. If you think of your favorite teacher and what are some of the characteristics that that person had, besides being someone who would have made you feel like you were the only person in the classroom, but that um, um, was able to tie together a couple of different, what might have seemed as disparate topics 
into a, a more cohesive whole. What happens then is those two topics become more interesting themselves. And importantly, you remember it. You remember it because of these, uh, the connections that are made. And, and those are signs of a good teacher. And without really saying that anywhere, uh, and going through and considering Albert in this way, you can, you can begin to see why he would have been considered that way. Go ahead, sister. Um, he, uh, 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 as you know, mentioned before with regard especially to the Aristotelian, uh, the use of, of Aristotle, was not, uh, was, was viewed with some suspicion uh, back in the day. And, and so even within uh, the Dominican order, the very young Dominican order at the time, there would have been um, at least a couple of different camps of do we really need to be doing this? Uh, the Dominican order was flourishing and they were flourishing because there was a real need to preach the word to, uh, for the salvation of souls as there were some pretty active and dangerous heresies. And so what, what you really need to learn is uh, uh, apologetics, theological approaches to how we, how we do this. Um, Albert would have thrown in, said it would help if, if my brothers were also uh, knowledgeable about a lot of other things. And, you know, we have some uh, smart people here. Let's, let's utilize all of their intellect. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, a friendly nature with a wry sense of humor, but he likely didn't suffer fools. And so, um, and, and I can especially see this uh, the, uh, uh, as Albert would have gotten uh, older. And, and I just, I love this quote so much uh, because I, I can see Albert walking from Germany to Paris, 70, over 70 years old. Uh, his favorite pupil, or his star pupil, has died. And he has to go to his own order to defend Thomas's writings, which were considered heretical. And uh, so, and then he gets, uh, and, and this is not from any speech that he would have given Paris at the time. This was given in a prologue to um, uh, uh, one of Aristotle's works, a political. And um, uh, so, but, but I, you could see where Albert would have just had enough if he was provoked. Aristotle does not say this on his own, but he reports how those people organize their states. I, too, do not say anything of my own in this book, but I explain what is said, exposing its reasons and causes. Like this in all physical books, I have never said something of my own, but I have explained the opinions of the Aristotelians as precisely as I can. Oh, that's the good part. Go ahead, sister. And this I say because of some indolent people, friars, who, in searching for a consolation of their stupidity, <laughs> look in writings only for what they can refuse. And as such people are as dumb as oxen, in order that they would not seem to move alone, they try to blame the elected. Such people killed Socrates, chased Plato away from Athens, and forced even Aristotle into exile by their intrigues. They are in the community of study as Gaul is in the body. So in study, there are always some bitter men who try to bring bitterness to all, but the others do not give in and do not give up to search for truth in the sweetness of good company. So he ends on a good note. <laughs> but the, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, this could have been written like a week ago. <laughs> you know, uh, for, uh, 
for the way that we think of, of things. So these are, uh, again, some, some amusings that I am saying on my own and taking, you know, <laughs> for whatever. But I, I thank you all. And if, if there are any questions or any discussion or anything like that, please uh, uh, let her rip. Uh, likely, likely, but I don't know if they're all translated. Anybody in here know any of that? Uh, now, Kathy, one, one of the things is that it is said that he did every book of the Bible. Right. There's, there's a lot of, when you start reading Albert's history, of the, it is said that he. And I'm thinking you're going to have to go into a really old German library somewhere to, to, to find some of these. Probably still many remain untranslated, be my bet. I know that there's one on the Song of Songs that has been translated into English. Cool. There are a lot of songs of songs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any others? Go ahead. Yeah, can you translate what Pope Benedict the 16th said in this quote you have in here? Uh, Did you put it in layman's terms? I assume you put this together. I. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. So, denying that transcendence in the name of the supposed absolute ability to sign and measure the big main conditions in the world. So, what scientists want to do is, well, excuse me, that's what some scientists want to do, eliminate any uh, recourse to, for a supernatural explanation. And so, including the transcendence of man. So, we can figure out everything that there is about man simply by the methods of natural science. And the fact that we haven't yet means that we just have more work to do. Okay, but, but, the, um, but uh, what Benedict said, Benedict has a lot of really good stuff regarding especially the interplay of science and culture, um, is by removing uh, what is human to man. It, it takes a human person out of the human species. And it is, it's important that we don't, I'll read it back, second. It's, it's important that we don't do that. Because as soon as you do, you have to admit that there is more to man than this biological thing. And uh, uh, Albert would say there's more to uh, horses than simply that biological thing. That, that a, a, a philosophical treatment of uh, in biology is brings more to it than just you know the biology of that horse. So, um, but you know, doing it with man is far more dangerous, far more, and it opens up as as Benedict finished that out, because if man really is just a, a glorified horse or monkey, then why not enslave man? Why not murder? Are there any others? Wait. I just want to know if you were in your study and if you came in touch with Albert himself, if you felt like you were the gospel of Albert. A little. A little. <laughs> a little, because I didn't read those theological writings. I didn't read them. Uh, it wouldn't have mattered. I likely would not have understood it. Uh, I, I would have leaned more toward his treatment of the scientific and, uh, but, but what, is that again, putting all of these things together, 
it was it was then that he had to have been a good teacher. And I mean, it's written plenty of places that he was a good teacher. Uh, but she didn't write down a lot of things. Uh, just because he had a lot of people that necessarily mean good teacher. They, they went looking for him. I think, well, why is that the case? And we, and we started with a long list of neat things, neat characteristics that he had. I, I can't even imagine walking all over Germany and reconciling troubling dice. I can imagine that thing uh, and, and, and this is what he did, and it was done skillfully through, through compromise. And, and, and scientists, as a rule, don't compromise. He always don't need and, uh, and so that, that he's able to do this as part of his personality is an extra part of his personality that you begin to see, oh, I can see why he would have been very hot. I saw another one actually. Sister, oh no. <laughs> Presenting on just uh, methodology regarding natural science. And, I, and in that case, I use Albert as an example, as opposed to sort of reverse what I did here. And so this, this list of references, I just I cap and I sort of keep up because they are they're the things I use to help think about um, a more philosophical approach to nature, which I'm, you know, I'm deficient at. I've said it four times. I just, I don't, I'm not very good at it. And so I'm looking for especially things written by scientists who are good uh, theologians and philosophers. And um, the, uh, there are a few of them in this. Um, first of all, Cardinal Schoenbaum is, uh, has a very good presentation about that book. And it should be called William Wallace, Modern Nature, for anybody who is uh, in this room who is in science. Uh, Father William Wallace is a uh, uh, PhD chemist, theologian, Dominican, uh, trustworthy. And uh, he really gives, from a scientist perspective, how to begin to think about nature using uh, uh, sort of Aristotelian cognitive. So that, that, that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. And then there's some here that are in the history of science, such as uh, the Lindbergh book. That's a secular book, but, you know, we take my father, uh, is a current, very good, very well-respected working scientist, uh, theologian, and, and he has a really good ability. He would have been like Albert, or he is like Albert, in that uh, he's a, a good teacher, he's a very good presenter, and he uh, is a very, very, uh, very good scientist of his process. So uh, this is this is just one of those that you can tuck away and feel free to get a touch of me like to uh, if, if you if there's some particular aspect that you want, then uh, I would be happy to turn you on to like which particular resource uh, to to uh, to look at. See, I told you I couldn't stay in one place. The other way to keep me quiet would have been to handcuff me. And then, uh, then nothing would have gotten done. Well, thank you. Thank you, sister. <laughs> thank you. That was fun.